This is Define the Narrative Podcast with your host, Anne Argo. My guest today is Dr. Rudy Quintero. He's the founder and medical director of Care Fertility in Glendale, California. He earned his medical degree at UCLA School of Medicine and completed his OBGYN residency at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. Following his residency, he completed a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Stanford University Medical Center. He currently teaches the OBGYN residents at White Memorial Medical Center and family practice at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. Dr. Quintero is double board certified by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology in both obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Dr. Q has helped thousands of families achieve their dreams of having babies. He's a great patient advocate and a firm believer in empowering his patients through information He has answered over 20,000 questions at FertilityTies.com to empower men and women trying to conceive. Dr. Q, thank you to Define the Narrative podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Anne. And I just want to say you went into this profession out of a point of passion that comes from your family. Do you mind really quickly sharing with us what that is that brought you to this profession? Yes, no problem. Happy to share that. And, you know, when people always ask me, especially in medicine, how did I choose reproductive endocrinology and fertility? My answer is always, and I've heard this before, you don't choose it. The field chooses you. And it is so true because people always have a natural affinity for the type of medicine that they want to go into. And hence mine coming from a pretty large Catholic family where in a simplistic way, you know, the more children you have, the the more Christian or Catholic you tend to be. If you don't have children, it's kind of a slant. They had many family members that for one reason or another um, did not, you know, have children and the stigma that the family would put on, it was always ingrained in me. And I thought it was so unjust. And it always fell on the women, um, never the men. For all I know is like, you know, my uncles were azospermic, right? My cousins were, had no sperm, for all I know. And there were the culprits and the women were fine. But no, uh, the women carried the cross, as we tend to say. Um, that always stuck. Uh, the tears that I saw, everything. And uh, it was always a passion. And I personally grew up the same way. Uh, my generation thinking we may not have any kids and how terrible a life would be without kids. And, you know, as if life was to be determined that your purpose in life is solely to have a kid. Um, but no, but that's the mindset. Um, and going through school, medical school and everything, I just fell into it and always loved it and have a passion to help those that are having difficult having kids. Uh, and you're very passionate about it because I can speak from experience. Um, you cheerleaded me through some tough times, and um, I'm super grateful for it. I always think back. Uh, I was ready to give up, and you were like, "Let's just try one more time." So, um, and it was the one. So, so I'm going to get right to it. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is because I've seen during the pandemic that women who have decided to create their own family 
not only are there more of us that are doing it in the pandemic, but we're starting to do it earlier. And so my first question is to you, for women who are thinking that this might be their path and their narrative, should they freeze their eggs? And if so, when? The sweet spot to freeze eggs, the sweet spot is about 33 to 35, 36 years of age. That's the sweet spot because you're still fertile enough uh, to do so. A little bit younger than that, there's a high likelihood still that if you're heterosexual, uh, you might, you know, if you find yourself in a in a mental abyss that you'll walk into a bar feeling the blues and your Prince Charming is right there. And within two years, there you are making a baby. That's still a reasonable possibility. Um, if you're older, 38, your fertility starts getting compromised significantly. doesn't mean we can't do it, but you're compromised. So 33 to 36, if you don't have a sperm, a known sperm donor right next to you, a suitor, it is a sweet spot to do so because the likelihood of finding somebody and procreating with somebody when you're 35 within the next two years is not likely. Um, so best to do it then. And so when a woman is ready to start this journey, should they get tested first or how do you decide um, what the course of action is when, when you have a new patient come to you? Uh, if it was up to me, if you're a woman that hit her 30s, you know, I would start kind of like, in a sense, there are general medical checkups. You know, you hit your 30s, you get your thyroid checks. You hit your 50s, you get your colons checked. You get, you know, you, you get a camera. Everybody wants your 50, you get a camera up, up there, right? It's just part of medicine, right? We all do. Because we're going to catch a bunch of people that don't. You get your cholesterol checked. You get this. The reality is once a woman goes over 30, she should get her AMH checked. Just to have some sort of peace of mind to know like, hey, I still have several good years in front of me. Because inevitably there's people that fall off the curve and you're like, Oh my goodness, if I knew I could have maybe preserved eggs a little bit earlier. Remember, I said 33 to 36, 35 is a sweet spot, assuming normal fertility. There's some that are going to come in below the curve. So those you want to freeze maybe when they're 30, 29. So right when you're there, you, it would be great if we could get some sort of fertility screening on all women that are interested in eventually having a family. And what's the number to hit the panic button for the AMH? Well, it depends, right? And it's a very generic screen. I, 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 uh, the best test of fertility is actually getting pregnant. The second best test is your age. The third best test are these, these blood tests, which have high variation amongst the population. There, it's fraught with a lot of problems. But I'd rather have be dealing with a potential problem than not knowing and leaving it to the unknown. My personal take. That's an opinion. You know, if you're 30 and above and your AMH is below one, I think most fertility doctors would start agreeing there might be a little panic button, you know, going there and start at least investigating to see if this is true or not true. Now, a 31-year-old with a low AMH that 
has been protecting herself, you can't categorize her as another 31-year-old that has been having unprotected intercourse for two years and has failed. Those are two different scenarios. Uh, you, you can't judge them the same. So an AMH is just a marker to try and help people empower them with more information to see how they want to take their fertility in their own hands. And do you think that, it, what do you have to say about women who've been on birth control that are, that are reaching this, this moment? Is, does that impact their fertility? Birth control, we know for a fact, does not impact uh, fertility. It resumes fairly quickly upon discontinuation of the birth control. So the answer is flat out no. And that's all forms of birth control, except for Depo-Provera, which lingers in the system. It can keep you from getting periods for up to 18 months has been described. But that's the only one that'll delay your fertility for a few months in general. And so I know that your end is after the sperm bank, but what advice do you have about choosing a sperm bank or, or is that even something that you have an opinion to offer? So what I do know is that most all sperm, well, not all, most all, all sperm banks are highly regulated in the United States. Uh, they are transplanting anonymous tissue into a different person. So the, the qualifications to become a sperm donor and to make sure and ensure that no sexually transmitted disease is transmitted from one person to another unknowingly, the standard is extremely high. And I do know for a fact the Food and Drug Administration does do these uh, insane amount of checkups, and rightfully so, to the sperm banks to make sure that they are adequately testing and treating all sperm donors that will eventually provide tissue for potential future patients. Um, so the minimal standard that they all have is pretty high. After that, it really becomes a customer service issue, uh, and that's really your interaction with the front person people, which can be hit and miss. Unfortunately, a lot of sperm banks, or like any businesses, are rated on the first person of contact, um, but that's not necessarily true of what sperm bank really is or is not. So basically, if it's it's if it's a, a, a above board sperm bank all fair up to customer service. And so it really is the one that, that suits you and makes you feel most comfortable with the way you find your donor. Absolutely. It's most important that you find the donor that you like. Uh, you know, there's some ethnicities that donors are harder to find. Say, for example, people from Southeast Asia, they're not usual donors. And if you want a donor, just find any sperm bank that has the person that you like. Um, if you're more of a general population American, you could probably find your gene pool in any sperm bank in the country. And so when you have women come to you that are going to use a sperm donor, unless you have reason to believe that, that there's a problem, you usually start with IUI or intrauterine insemination. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, so because... Mo the, uh, this population has not had a fair shot of getting pregnant inexpensively. Uh, for the most part, they do deserve a few intrauterine insemination attempts. 
uh, irrespective of what the fertility hormone says, your anti-mullerian hormone or the profile, because as I like to joke, heterosexuals, uh, before consummating a relationship or before going to the altar, they don't run to us fertility doctors and say, let's, let me get my sperm checked. Let me get my ovaries checked. They don't, they don't even know who the heck I am. It's or like, can no. I take your DNA? Can I take your medical history for no. three generations? <laughs> nope, they don't know. It's a sad statement when they have to know who I am because then, then there's a pillow talk kind of going like, well, honey, is it you? Is it me? Uh, let's go see Dr. Quintero or my nearest fertility. So, you know, single mothers by choice or same sex that haven't had the same opportunities as heterosexual to define that they are truly infertile, you know, does warrant the ability to just have basic intrauterine inseminations because a good proportion will get pregnant, just like the heterosexuals that, you know, do have diminished ovarian reserve, don't know about it, uh, sleep with their newfound husbands, and in three months, voila, they're pregnant, never had to meet me, never had to know about me, or never cared to even do the research. So give yourself a chance for the less expensive pathway before you decide to go on to the more expensive. And that brings me to my next question. How does one choose a reproductive endocrinologist? Because I have to say, I was given your name by another single mom by choice through a friend. And I feel like it was kismet because I, if I could go back and choose, if I knew every RE in the world, I there was just something about you that, and then maybe this is not true. I felt like the population that 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 I'm I'm working to communicate and support right now. You have a special place for for women who are doing this on their own, or, or are you like that with everybody? Well, I try to be like that with everybody, and and the the so there's a few factors when choosing an RE. Um, one is. If you're doing it a simple insemination, then you can pretty much go anywhere. Uh, it becomes a little bit more complex if you want to do in vitro fertilization because then you need to know where your laboratory is. Uh, because if, for all you know, let's say somewhere in middle America, uh, you may be in some city, but there's no laboratory in the city. And if you don't ask, you know, you'll get all your testing, your treatment, but then you might have to drive 200 miles to get your equity. And even in major cities in Los Angeles, which where it happens a lot, and including myself, I also do have a satellite center. Um, mind you, there is no other laboratory near that center. You know, it's good to know that, oh, there's no laboratory, so no matter what, I have to drive 20 miles in each direction, which is the equivalent of 200 miles in Iowa and Los Angeles, right? Because it takes you the same amount of time. Um, but if you're in the heart of Los Angeles or New York City or Seattle, um, and you're going to an RE and they say, you know, they disclose, well, you have to drive across town, uh, you, you may want to think twice about doing that because driving across town may be a problem when there may be just a, an equally suitable RE across the street that has a full laboratory there with you. So infrastructure logistics is one thing to think about. Number two, are they a fully accredited fertility center? Believe it or not, even in Los Angeles, half the fertility centers do not report to major organizations or do not report to the Society for Reproductive and Infertility, SART, uh, 
sorry, um, do not register with many other sources. So they kind of work in the shadows. Uh, what they say is may not what you hear. And, and I'm not necessarily arguing that you go up and start comparing pregnancy rates because that's not fair or ideal either because you can switch those any which way, but at least know that they're credible. Just go into the SART database. Um, they only allow board-certified reproductive endocrinologists that have CAP-accredited laboratories. Not every laboratory is CAP-accredited. Not everybody has all these credentials. SART.org is a good place to start. And if they're listed, they're most likely legitimate and at least try and make an effort to report. Don't go into the numbers. Uh, I, that's not fair either. But at least start there. And you, speaking of your practice, you have several offices. Where, are your, where all do you practice in the Los Angeles area? So the main operations is in Glendale, as you mentioned before. Uh, two satellite offices, one in Upland and the other one in Arcadia. So those of you that are in Southern California looking for a great RE, uh, here comes your best recommendation. And so before we get to my COVID-related questions, because I know that that's going to be a hot one, I want to ask a question that goes back to my own because, like I said, you brought me back from the brink. And uh, I got to a point where I basically had found that I had poor ovarian reserve. And I was ready to be done, take my mother on a cruise, wait until I'm 45 and go into adoption. And and it was just one little sentence that you said to me. So if someone gets that, and I know there's many other diagnoses, but if someone gets that, you know, P-O-R, what would you say to them? Well, it, it, it's, we have to put it in context in the actual person and everything else. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier to you, Anne. A single mother by choice or a same-sex couple DOR is going to be different than a heterosexual uh, DOR who's 40 years old. Everything, you know, everything is normal. They've been trying to get pregnant for 12 years. Uh, they, I may be more realistic in offering alternates than somebody who is just newly diagnosed DOR 2, 3 inseminations and say, keep on pushing, keep on going. Um, but I guess trusting that your RE will have your best interest in heart is going to be a most important factor because a lot of REs may just be looking at the bottom line. And unfortunately, that is a reality in a lot of the practices. And I can say uh, you, that was it. That was the moment where I had to put Google aside. <laughs> because when you go on Google, it says, look for an egg donor. And, um, and definitely a difficult conversation to have. So uh, making sure that your RE is willing to, to talk about what's in your best interest, um, not really about lining their pockets. So with COVID, a couple of questions. Um, for a woman who is a prospective trying to get pregnant, is the vaccine going to make a difference? And for women newly pregnant, is the vaccine going to make a difference? So the answer is 100% no. There's been studies. Our board has supported vaccinating pregnant women, women trying to get pregnant. There is no data, no correlation. Uh, that uh, There's a lot of misinformation, but the answer is no. And so get vaccinated. <laughs> Yeah, get vaccinated, please. 
So this growing population that, uh, seriously, just from 10 years ago, I think has literally changed. And I know from when I had my child and thinking through even being a parent, I knew then that by the time he graduates from high school, that he was not going to be um, a very small population, that it was going to be more of the norm. What would you say to women who are thinking about taking this pathway? Any advice? So you're absolutely correct, Anne. You know, our country is very multicultural, multi-everything, multi-accepting. We're all human beings with a short, limited time on this planet, and we must learn to love and respect one another uh, for this. Previous generations may not have been as good as us, or we will not be as good as upcoming generations. I think that much younger generations are going to have going to be much more accepting um, and comfortable with kids of any type of background and upbringing. I think it's just the norm nowadays. I, I, I agree with you, and I think that that's why I chose to find the narrative, because um, I know the difficult conversations I had with my parents, when it comes down to it, it's only if you act like there's something not okay with what you're doing that it is problematic. And I know for me, I defined it. It was my family. Our families are our families, and who is in it is exactly who it's supposed to be. And I think that care really does speak to who you are as an RE. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be one of our first podcast interviews um, on Define the Narrative. And uh, I highly recommend anybody go see you in Southern California. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anne, for having me.